0: If so you want to take your Bibles in turn, we're going to be in the book of Mark. We're starting a new series here, going through Mark's gospel. As I explained a couple weeks ago, my intention is to go through the first few chapters of Mark and then to break this summer and go into Habakkuk and then start into Genesis in the fall and then come back to Mark after that. So it'll be broken up a little bit, but we're going to spend some time in Mark's gospel. And I, I think of the... The words of Robert Murray McShane, who was a Scottish pastor in the 19th century, and he he talked about how he, he loved to preach the Bible, but there was nothing sweeter than going to the Gospels and staring directly at Jesus. And and I I remember as we preached through Mark or John rather that, that feeling of it is so sweet to look straight at Jesus. And so I'm excited to go into Mark here and look straight at Jesus. I want you to imagine that you are a Christian in the city of Rome in the year 55 AD. You've heard oral accounts of Jesus' life. You've heard and believed the message concerning the forgiveness of sins, that, that there is forgiveness freely given to all of those who trust in Jesus, the perfect Son of God who took on flesh and then died in the place of sinners and who rose again triumphant over death. But while this gospel, this good news has been preached in your city, it's penetrating your city, a, a church has formed of those who believe this message and they come together weekly to worship the risen Jesus, to read the scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament, seeking to understand how all of the Old Testament, all of the scriptures point towards Jesus. The one thing they don't have is an authoritative written record of the gospel story. All they have are the verbal stories, the collection of stories around Jesus' life and his teachings, not one written story. And if the church is going to live past the eyewitnesses, men like Peter, who was one of the leaders of the church in Rome, then this story, this good news, needed to be put down in writing. Enter Mark. Mark, the writer of this gospel, was a close associate of the apostle Peter, and though he himself was not an eyewitness to most of Jesus' life in ministry, we think he was probably substantially younger than the apostles were, he was very close to several who were eyewitnesses. In 1 Peter 5:13, Peter calls Mark, my son. He's not literally his son, but he's someone who's very dear to him. And spiritually, he's brought under Peter's wing, and Peter considers him a son in the faith. In in the book of Acts, this is a man who we see called John Mark. Uh, Actually, when Peter is miraculously released from prison in Acts chapter 12, he goes to the home of John Mark's mother. And we learn from the book of Colossians that Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. He's also someone who traveled with the Apostle Paul in his early missionary journeys. As Paul was going places with Barnabas, they brought along Barnabas' little cousin, and, and Mark comes along, and then that actually doesn't end very well. We don't know why, but Mark, for some reason, whether he got homesick or got afraid of all the persecution they were facing or what, he goes home. And later on, when they go to take another journey, Barnabas wants to bring Mark along again, give him another shot, and Paul... Paul is a pretty hard driver, and he says, I've got no time for this guy. He's a flake. I'm not going to take him with us. And Paul and Barnabas end up splitting over this issue. And Barnabas takes Mark, and, and Paul has to find another traveling companion. But by the end of Paul's ministry, there's apparently been reconciliation, because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he calls Mark someone who is very useful to me. So in sum, we know that Mark was a close associate of the early church leaders, and Peter especially. And and the unanimous witness of the early church, I mean, we have writings from the late 90s AD stating this. Uh, The the testimony of the early church is that the gospel of Mark is essentially Peter's account of the events of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. So, So Mark's the one writing, but what he's writing down is Peter's story. And this helps to to explain some of the stylistic features of Mark's gospel that make it unique. And we know from all of the gospels that Peter was very slow to think, quick to speak and quick to act, right? He's the opposite of James chapter 1. There's nothing hesitating in Peter's personality. It's what makes him so relatable to many of us. He's just if it's in his head, it's out his mouth. It's about how fast it goes. And most of this gospel comes to us in the form of action-centered stories. Uh, the word "immediately" occurs over 40 times. If you see the word "immediately" in the New Testament, you have an 80% chance of being in the Gospel of Mark. He, he uses, I think there's, I think there's like 52 total occurrences of the word "immediately" in the New Testament. Over 40 are in Mark. <clears throat> the details of the stories that, that Mark tells are generally more extended, and more detailed than the other gospel writers. Even though Mark's gospel is the shortest, his details have the most vivid illustration, the the most life in them. On the other hand, the teaching sections are much shorter and just kind of get to the point. As I was thinking about this, I was reading back over my notes this morning, and I thought, Mark is like my little brother Levi, he is a great storyteller. He'll give you all of the details and he'll wind you along the path and bring you to the punchline of the story. But if you tell him, to and, and he's also really sharp, like he can take, like if he's listening to a sermon or listening to a, a book, he can give you the core of the message in a pretty succinct form, like one or two sentences. It's the opposite of me. <laughs> like, I'm an awful storyteller, but if you want, what do you know about this? Well, I'll give you way more than you wanted that for an answer. I'm more, I'm more like the Gospel of Matthew. Like There's so much teaching, and the stories are kind of short. <clears throat> Mark is the opposite. Mark has short, punchy teaching sections and long, vivid stories. And these stories often feature Peter. Peter Peter, Peter features, we'll put those words separately, <clears throat> in many of these stories, but not always in a positive way. Uh, his, his failures, his sins, his foolishness are just as evident as his faith. So the story of, of Mark's gospel is told from a very Peter point of view. But, but the story is never aimed at Peter. The story is aimed somewhere else. It's not the gospel concerning Peter. It's the gospel concerning Peter. Jesus. So Mark chapter one, verse one, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So what what should we understand Mark to be saying when he says that this is the beginning of the gospel? I puzzled a lot over that one phrase, the beginning of the gospel. <clears throat> I think the two most likely explanations are number one, he's calling this whole story, the whole book, the beginning of the gospel that they have heard, that they have received. Or second, and I think more likely, that he's saying that this this introduction to the book is the beginning of the gospel. So verses 1 through 13 form the preface to Mark's whole gospel. And I think he's saying, okay, we're going to introduce you to the beginning, the prefatory part of the book. Uh, and, and Mark's introduction is very different than the other Gospels. So while John starts us way back in eternity past, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Ma- Matthew and Luke both have the extended birth narratives that we always think about come Christmas time. Matthew's focusing on the coming of the Magi, and Luke talking about the shepherds out in the fields, and they both have the angel stories. Mark when we get to verse 14 and 15, is going to jump straight into the ministry of Jesus. And verses 1 through 13 set us up, like they get us to be ready for for that ministry. But even then, like everything that we get about Jesus in Mark's gospel is as an adult, already human being in this world. And the interesting thing is that after we get verse 1, the introduction to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the focus spins off of Jesus for a second and focuses on somebody else. Why does Mark start with John in the introduction to Jesus? Verses two and following says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight straight. the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In introducing us to Jesus, Mark cuts immediately to a quotation from the Old Testament. He says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. What you might be curious, if you're reading really carefully, and maybe you've got footnotes in your Bible, it, you'll see that, this quotation is not just from Isaiah. Uh, how can he say, as it says in Isaiah the prophet, when it's not all from Isaiah, when it's a compound quote? Well, it was a common practice in the first century when you take a compound quote like this, when you piece together these phrases from various sources to cite the most prominent source. And there is there no more prominent prophet in the Old Testament than Isaiah. There there wasn't a Chicago manual of style for scripture writers, but there were a set of conventions, literary conventions, and the biblical authors generally followed those conventions. So when Mark says, as it says in Isaiah the prophet, and then goes on to quote Malachi, Exodus, and Isaiah, he's not doing anything weird. This is just a normal literary convention. But I want to read for you if you're really fast, you can turn there, but I'm just going to read these three passages from which this, this quote is drawn. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, <clears throat> there, and that quote is flavored by Exodus 23:20 and then Isaiah 40 and verse 3. Malachi 3, 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Uh, that verse is coming, it, it sets up the coming of the Lord into his temple with a refining fire, scrubbing the people, cleaning them like fuller soap. It says he's going to refine them like silver in the following verses there in Malachi 3. And Malachi had borrowed his language from Exodus 23, 20, which says, Behold, I send an angel. And that word angel can also mean messenger. I send a messenger before you. And in Exodus 23, the angel was preparing the way before the Israelites as they went into the land of Canaan, into the land of promise. And they were supposed to obey the messenger, and he would prepare the way before them. And then Isaiah 40 and verse 3 says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And here in Isaiah, the voice is crying out, Prepare away in the wilderness because God, in the rest of Isaiah 40, is about to bring a message of salvation. Before we, we think about those texts in relation to one another and, like, what is the main point that, that we're supposed to get, I just want to encourage you to read your Bible the way that Mark is reading his Bible. He doesn't look at these various Old Text- Testament texts separated by a thousand years. There's a thousand years between Exodus 23 and 1400 B.C., and Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, 400 BC. He he doesn't read them and say, ah, interesting verses. Crazy that there are some similar themes in here. Instead, he understands that they're all part of one revelation of God unfolding throughout the history of Israel, unfolding throughout human history, and they find their ultimate meaning in the events surrounding the life and work of Jesus. We need need to read the scriptures with that same awareness, that this is all connected, that all of these things are related to one another. Exodus is not unrelated from Mark, is not unrelated from Psalms. Everything that you're reading is connected. But as we come back to these particular texts, if we put them together, what we see is that Mark is telling us John the Baptist was the one coming before the Messiah to prepare his way, to prepare in the wilderness, to prepare in the desert the way of salvation. And this is a pattern we see all through the Old Testament. Moses came and taught the people, and he instructed them, and he led them out of Egypt. But it was Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. Jesus and Joshua are the same name. It was Joshua who led them into the Promised Land. Before Elisha, Came and worked judgment in Israel as the prophet with a sword. Before he did miracles of multiplying food and healing the sick, there was another wilderness prophet named Elijah. Moses and Elijah, like John, were prophets of the wilderness, and Mark wants us to hear the similarities. Uh, the messenger in the wilderness, as Malachi 3 had predicted, was identified later on in the book of Malachi. It's the very very last book of the Old Testament, if you want to flip there. In Malachi chapter 4, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. In chapter 4, verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Elijah the prophet was supposed to come before Messiah, before the day of the Lord, before the day when the Lord would visit his people. And Mark belabors the similarities between Elijah and John. The wilderness is mentioned in the text of the, the portion of the text quoted from Isaiah. It's brought up again in verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. And it's again emphasizes the place where Jesus himself was driven. In verses 12 and 13, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness. He was with the wild animals. The clothing which John wore is, is supposed to bring to our mind the prophet Elijah. Here in verse 6 of Mark chapter 1, we're told John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And if you look in Second Kings chapter 1 and verse 8, you see a description. There's a, a messenger who's coming to King Ahab, and Ahab, he's... he's The messenger had run into this guy who had said, here, take a message to Ahab. And as the man is describing this person to King Ahab, he says he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And that outfit is so distinctive. It's so unique that Ahab knows exactly who that man is. He says, oh, it is Elijah the Tishbite. There's only one guy running around the wilderness wearing camel's hair with a leather belt. It's Elijah. Elijah. And so we're supposed to hear that echo when, when John is wearing camel's hair with a leather belt and he's eating food of the wilderness, honey and locusts. We're supposed to think this is an Elijah-like figure. In, in chapter 9 of Mark, after the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, they've seen Jesus transformed before their eyes. Peter, James, and John, they see him, they sp- they see him speaking with Moses and Elijah Afterwards, they're discussing among themselves, like, what did that mean? <laughs> I mean, I would probably have the same questions, right? Like, what's going on here? And, and they come to Jesus and they say, so why do the scribes say that Elijah had to come first? And Jesus replied, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Uh, in a parallel account over in Matthew chapter 17, it tells us that when Jesus says this to them, Matthew 17:13, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. That they understood that the Elijah who had come, that Jesus said he's already been here, and they treated him however they wanted. That prophet who came was John the Baptist. They caught the clues. So how was John like Elijah? How was he the one preparing the way in the wilderness? How was he preparing the way for Jesus? Well, John prepared the way for Jesus by preaching. That's what verse 4 says. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming. That's what true preaching is. It's a proclamation of the truth of God given in his word. And what was John proclaiming? What was the message he was preaching? It says a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, that's an interesting phrase for many of us, maybe. We, we think forgiveness of sins, we think faith in Jesus. That's what we just read in Galatians, right? It, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Are we out of step with John's message? Are we say, is he saying get baptized to get saved while we say believe to get saved? I don't think so. <clears throat> Read the sentence carefully. What kind of a baptism is this? It says the baptism is a baptism of repentance, which is to say that baptism is an external sign of something that's already happened within them. John is telling them, he's calling them, To repent of their sins. If you look at the other gospels, you get some of the fiery, I mean, for lack of a better term, like hellfire and brimstone language that that John uses, right? He calls people broods of vipers. He calls them snakes and, and says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Like he's calling them out saying, repent of your sins. And then he says, show that you mean it by being willing to get down in the water. Get down in the Jordan River and I will dunk you under and pull you up. Those who repent will be forgiven. Peter in 1 Peter 3.21 refers to baptism as an appeal to God from a good conscience, for a good conscience rather. We, we appeal to God in baptism saying, I repent of my former life. I identify with Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. That, that's what being submerged in the water and raised anew means. There's not any magic in the ritual itself. That same 1 Peter 3 passage says that it doesn't save in the sense of washing away. It's not not the washing itself that does the work, but that washing is a picture of what God has done within you when you trust in Christ. And so going through the ritual, going through the dunking and being raised, is a crucial step of faith to publicly identify with Jesus. Now, John didn't have all of that information of what the baptism meant, even though he's doing it. The baptism he was practicing, though, worked along the same lines. He he called sinners to repentance and to be ritually washed of their old self and raised clean as new people, those who were to live by faith in the Messiah who was to come, who he's preaching about. There's one coming after me. He's not saying trust in the washing. He's saying get washed and believe in the one who's coming. Repentance and faith—repenting of your old life and trusting Christ to save you—are two sides of the same coin. We repent of our sins, and we trust God—that is, we have faith that He will forgive us of those sins. And we can see this is precisely the effect that John's preaching is having in the region. Verse five says that all the region of Judea and all Jerusalem were coming out to be baptized by him, as totalizing statement. All Judea, all Jerusalem doesn't literally mean every person. Herod certainly wasn't trudging out there to get <laughs> baptized, right? But but it means that John's ministry wasn't some tiny thing in some backwater in the wilderness that nobody knew about. It was in a backwater in the wilderness, but everybody knew about it. It, it was off in the desert. But while you may not have gone down there yourself, you surely knew people who had. You, Either you were repenting and getting baptized, or you were resenting John for implying that you should. And that resentment will end up being an important part of the story. John called all sinners to repent. It ultimately, as we see in chapter 6 of Mark, cost him his life. Because he called King Herod to repent, got thrown in prison. And while he's sitting in prison, Herod's wife doesn't really like him very much. And, and so she ends up working things so that he gets his head chopped off. The call to repent may seem ho-hum to those of us who've grown up in church and heard about sin and repentance, forgiveness and grace. But for the Jews, the call to repentance, especially as pictured in baptism, would have been shocking Baptisms were practiced at that time, but they were primarily for non-Jews who wanted to become proselytes, who wanted to be identified with the Jewish people and worship Yahweh. They could go through this ceremonial washing so that, as part of the welcome-in process. But here John was saying that even the Jews needed to be washed. They needed to repent. They needed clean hearts in order to come to God. Being part of the chosen people, being descended from Abraham physically was not enough. As Paul says in Galatians 3 that we read, you have to be descended from him by faith. You have to believe God the same way that Abraham did. Repentance and washing were necessary. Forgiveness was needed for anyone, Jew or Gentile, to be right with God. And John didn't just preach about the need for forgiveness. He also preached about the one who would bring that forgiveness. Verse 7, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. But he will, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John bab- preached about the one who would bring forgiveness. The one who would baptize not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to spend more time next week, Lord willing, looking at Jesus' own anointing with the Spirit. But John's message was clear, that the Messiah, the one who was coming, the one who was mightier than John, would not just have the Spirit, but would be a giver of the Spirit. This is a promise that Jesus made a key part of his own teaching, especially in the Gospel of John. So what I want to do here is just walk through some of the sections in John, where Jesus makes clear that he's the one who gives the Spirit and the necessity of receiving the Spirit. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8 say, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, that phrase born again can also mean born from above. It's the same, it's like a double entendre there. It's got a double meaning. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Then over in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. It's much later on in Jesus's ministry. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were yet to receive, who were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And that again is another passage that pulls on themes from the Old Testament, from Exodus. Uh, We're going to look next week some at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where it says, that the rock that the Israelites drank from in the wilderness was Christ, the the rock that poured forth water. And here Jesus says, if you come to me, out of your heart will pour these rivers of living water. The Spirit will come. Jesus is the one who gives the gift of the Spirit and gives spiritual life. And over in John chapter 16, John chapter 16 verse 7 Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room they're all upset they're worried because Jesus is going to go away he's telling us he's leaving what are we going to do Jesus says I'll, I'll read verse 6 because of I have said these things to you sorrow has filled your heart nevertheless I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away if I do not go away the helper will not come to you but if I go I will send him to you And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And I think if you set those verses in context, the way that the Spirit does that is because he's present in the church, in the lives of believers, and convicts the world through the presence and activity of the church and the preaching of the gospel. And this promise that the Spirit would come came to fruition on the day of Pentecost when The believers gathered in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Acts chapter 2 and verse 2 says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This this gospel of which Mark is writing about is about something, in one sense, new that God is doing in history. It, in another sense, it's very old. God, God had first promised a redeemer, the seed of the woman who had crushed the head of the snake all the way back in Genesis 3.15. The, the Bible's one long unfolding story Of God bringing that promise to fruition in human history through the line of Abraham, through the people of Israel, culminating in Jesus, the Son of God. Mark ties his narrative back to that salvation history by telling us that the old patterns of the wilderness prophet followed by the leader who will bring his people into the promised land. Those patterns are still intact. They come to fruition in Jesus. Mark wants us to know that John is the Elijah-like forerunner who's preparing the way for God's people to enter the promised land of rest. But this time it's not a land flowing with milk and honey, literally. It's, It's not a strip of Canaan. It's the rest of having your sins forgiven. It's the milk and honey of being able to read and enjoy God's word and not simply be overwhelmed by the inability to do it as the Israelites were. It's the rest of being right with God. All four of the gospel writers spend a lot of time on John the Baptist early on in their gospel narratives. And they do this so that we can see Jesus isn't dropping out of the sky unexpected. He's not a random figure in history. He's the one who fulfills the Old Testament patterns and predictions and expectations. And, And the better we grasp those Old Testament patterns, the better we will understand the New Testament. But the connection with the Old Testament and fulfillment of proper expectations doesn't mean that Jesus fulfilled all the expectations that Jews in the first century had. They had many false expectations. What John was announcing and what Mark was writing had deep and old roots, but it also had this aspect of surprise to it. The, the rest that John says is coming is not the rest of having your land freed from Roman occupation. It's not the rest that comes. It is the rest that comes from being freed from the power of sin. It's the rest of receiving the Holy Spirit and thus actually having the power to follow God and to live the obedient life which he requires. The people of Israel had tried and failed to follow God and tried and failed to follow God. I mean that Galatians 3 passage that we read says that that the law became like a prison for them. They needed supernatural help to defeat their worst enemies. And their worst enemies weren't Herod and Caesar. Their worst enemies were sin and self. But this freedom, this forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit isn't given to everyone. It's only given to those who repent of their sins and believe in the greater one who followed after John. And so for each of us today, as we read this introduction to Mark's gospel, the question is pretty simple. Have you repented of your sins and trusted Jesus to forgive you? Have you received the gift of the Spirit? Have you been born again? And to press a little further, have you made that public by being baptized in obedience to him? You need to renounce your sins and embrace Jesus, and it needs to be public. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you speak to us clearly in your word. We thank you for the gift that you give of repent, the gifts of repentance and faith. Would you help us to hate our sin the way you hate our sin? And would you help us to turn to and hold fast to Jesus, who is the only one who's able to save us? We pray these things in Jesus' name.